So the muscles respond to specific patterns and specific reasons why. Um, for instance, according to the location, according to where they, the muscles are, they receive their name, like this one is called tibialis anterior, because it's right next to the tibia, and it's uh, anterior, according to the position of the body, anatomical position. So some clues sometimes are very useful to remember the names and help to locate all these muscles. The muscles can be named also, also according to the size, like using the words maximus, which means the greatest, maximus. And whenever there's a maximus, the logic tells us that there must be a minimus, and that's usually the case. There's a gluteus maximus, there is a gluteus minimus. And even more, you will see there is a gluteus medius. So remember these things also help. Gluteus, if you remember from the very first laboratory we had on the anatomical regions and all that, gluteal region, we named that part of the body. And the, the, the muscle receives the same name. Another criteria that is used to name the muscles are the number of attachments like the biceps and triceps and the upper limb. They have two attachments, two heads. That's the reason why we call them biceps. And the triceps, which is posterior, it has three heads or three parts. The muscle has three parts. And there's even a quadriceps, which is in the thigh, because it has four portions. Location, direction of fibers is another criteria, like the muscles of the abdominal wall. They are called obliques, like external oblique, internal oblique, because the fibers are running in an oblique way. Transversus abdominis, because the fibers run in a transverse way across the abdomen. Some other muscles, they receive their names according to the origin and the insertion. Like the, these two examples here, a stylohyoid, because it comes from the origin is in the styloid process of the temporal bone, and it goes to insert to the hyoid bone, which is in the base of the tongue. So sometimes just by hearing the attachments, so the name of the muscle, we can know about the attachments. Sternocleidomastoid, which has three attachments. Sterno to the sternum, cleido to the clavicle, cleido stands for clavicle, the mastoid for mastoid process of the temporal bone. There is one coracobrachialis also. Coraco from coracoid process of the scapula, brachialis, that means arm and to the humerus, coracobrachialis. According to the action, that's another criteria. Levator scapulae. Levator, which means the muscle that lifts the scapula. Adductor magnus. It makes adduction. Magnus, because it's a huge muscle that we have in the thigh. And there's also a magnus, a longus, a brevis, which means smaller. Tensor tympani is a muscle in the middle ear, which is a very small muscle, but it does what it 
The name says tensor. It tenses the tympani, the eardrum. For instance, this levator scapula here, it comes from the angle of the scapula to the cervical vertebrae. And it has, that's the muscle that makes it lift the scapula in this way, the levator scapula. You can remember that by the, by the, by, by the action. No, that's, the traps is different. Yeah, this is deeper. The trapezius is a more superficial layer. Or by combination of all the criteria that we've been speaking about, like this muscle called fibularis longus. Fibularis because it's next to the fibula. Longus, if there's a longus, then there is a brevis. And there is right next to the other, fibularis longus and fibularis brevis. So that brings us the concept of origins and insertions. Every single muscle has at least two attachments, one origin and one insertion. And sometimes it has two origins. And always what we see is that the muscles go around the joint. It's crossing over a joint. So in that way, it can move the joint and, and perform the, the, the body movement. But one of the bones is always involved in two bones. One bone remains stationary and the other bone moves. Like in the case of the biceps, the, the action of the biceps is flexion of the forearm. The humerus remains in the same position. What we do is this. The bone that moves is the radius. So following that, we can say that the origin is the attachment to the bone that is a stationary. And it's usually proximal. And the bone that moves, that's what we call the insertion. That's where the insertion of the muscle is. Some examples here. The long head of the biceps. The bicep has two heads, long head and short head. The long head of the biceps attaches to the scapula. In this uh, section, we can see this tendon running in this way and attaching to the scapula in the shoulder, which is the same area that we see in the diagram going in this way. That's the long tendon of the biceps, the long head of the biceps. That will be the origin of the biceps, one of the origins. The biceps has the origin in the scapula, therefore. And actually in two places, one of them to the scapula, to the glenoid cavity, the top of the glenoid cavity, and the other head it, uh, comes from the coracoid process of the scapula. Insertion is in the radius. And the action of these biceps is flexion of the forearm, but not only, also supination. Well, supination is this action right here, putting palms up in this way. So what we do in this biceps is working. But not only, the action can also be flexion. Supination and flexion, that's the action of the biceps. And triceps, the origin, is also in the scapula but also in the humerus because it has three, up to three different heads. 
And the insertion goes down to the ulna, to the olecranon process of the ulna. And the main move action of the triceps is extension of the forearm. Biceps makes this, and triceps makes extension. Flexion, biceps, extension, triceps. Now, all the muscles, we say, they are always crossing a joint. And the joint responds to the movement or contraction of the muscle, one bone moving, moving over the other. And in physics, we study the levers and uh, different points that we call the F4, the fulcrum, and the load. And we can make an analogy with the muscles, with the action of the muscles. Because when the muscles move, the bones, joints, work at different components of those levers. And uh, the point of movement is the fulcrum, fixed uh, point. And around that point is where the effort and load will be placed. In this case, in this particular movement with the biceps, the load is on the hand. That's when we're holding something. But the effort has to be made by the biceps. It has to contrast so we can hold the object like this. What is the fulcrum? The fulcrum will be the elbow. So around the elbow, the movement will occur. Load here and effort in this way. There are other examples of different types of levers like this one that works like scissors where the fulcrum is in the central part and the effort and load go in the same direction. Like when we flex our head like this and extend the head, the muscle that works are the extensors and the posterior neck. And the fulcrum in this case is in that joint that we mentioned already, the atlanto-occipital, between the atlas and the occipital condyles, where we make this flexion extension of the head. And another type of lever is this one that resembles a wheelbarrow, where the fulcrum is more distal in this case, the fulcrum will be here in the metatarsophalangeal joint. When we stand like this, these muscles of the leg, posterior leg, the gastrocnemius and soleus are the ones that make the effort, and the load goes in the opposite direction, but the fulcrum is in the, in the tip of the, head, of, the, of the foot. And this is the one that we mentioned at the beginning, the action of the biceps, with this different called third class lever uh, where the fulcrum and the effort and load go in different directions. So the fulcrum here, the effort goes in opposite direction than the load. These are just analogies of the different types of muscles and joints with different types of levers and that explains the movement and the effort that the muscles have to make in order to move some part of the body. Now, another concept so we should have is that the muscles don't work alone. The muscles work as a group of muscles always. So when we work out for the biceps, we're not just only moving the biceps. 
we are working out the coracobrachialis, the brachialis, which is underneath. So all these muscles work in group. And also the triceps, because when I lift a load like this, I have to return to the original position. And I'm making my triceps work. Not primarily, but it involves the movement of a group of muscles. So in that sense, we have to define the action of these groups of muscles. The prime mover, or agonists, are called the muscles that are the primary responsible for some movement, like the biceps. You want to flex my forearm like this. Thus, the biceps will be the prime mover or agonist. And the antagonist stretches while the agonist contracts and opposes the action of the agonist or prime mover. In this example of the biceps triceps, when we flex the forearm, the biceps is the prime mover and the triceps is the antagonist. Because when the biceps contracts, the, the triceps has to relax. And if the triceps doesn't relax, then we're in trouble. We cannot perform the movement. So always, there's an agonist and antagonist. But not only two, there are more muscles, like the synergists. Synergists are muscles that also contract together with the prime mover to prevent unwanted movements or to aid the movement of the main prime mover or agonist. Like the biceps and brachialis, they work together. So when we flex the biceps, when we make the biceps contract, it also, the brachialis also contracts. Brachialis is a synergist. It's a synergist to the biceps. And there are other group of muscles called fixators. It's actually a type of synergist, but it is mainly, the main action is to get the joints stable. Like when we make this movement and the load is important, we need to keep the shoulder fixed. Otherwise we'll go like completely all around. You have to fix your shoulder and then perform this movement. So those muscles that fix the shoulder are called the fixators. Or when we make these butterfly movements, we're working out here, you make your pecs work, the pectoralis major, but you notice that your biceps are also working to make this. And your deltoid also, because they have to fix this, the, the joint here. There's a prime mover, there's agonists, antagonists, synergists, and fixators. And all that is seen in the in some of these machines that you find in the gyms, it says this machine is for deltoid. But then, additionally, it says, and also makes your these other muscles work. And you see the list there, biceps, coracobrachialis, brachialis. Some machines show that. You know that not only one muscle, they're all muscles working. So now let's go and see the major skeletal muscles. And as I said, basically the, uh, the muscles that are in the list that we're going to do in the lab. We're going to see the muscle, the name of the muscle, origin, insertion, the action, and their innervation. Starting with the muscles called the facial muscles, muscles of the head, and uh, cranial muscles. 
The main muscle of the cranium is called the occipital frontalis. Occipital frontalis. We have a these diagrams were taken from the book. You have a, even a guide for pronunciation of the names. Occipital frontalis. And also known as epicranius. So you can find both names. They refer to the same muscle. Occipital frontalis or epicranius. And it has two parts, two portions, two muscular portions that are connected by anaponeurosis. The frontal belly and the occipital belly. The frontal belly, both of these muscular parts, they are innervated by the seventh cranial nerve, facial nerve. And by the way, it's the nerve that innervates all muscles of the face. That makes it easier. What is the action of these muscles? Well, the frontal belly that draws the scalp anteriorly, raises your eyebrows, and the occipital belly draws the scalp posteriorly. Very simple muscle, occipital frontalis, or epicranius with two parts, frontal belly and occipital belly. And then we have a series of muscles in the face which are called the facial muscles or facial gestures muscles. Those are the muscles of facial expression. All expressions of the face are because of these muscles. And there, are, there are many of them. And many of them are very small. Very small and uh, can be hard to identify, especially in during dissections and identification. In the models, you can see it better, but sometimes one model differs from another. And some of them represent the smaller, some of them not so clear, but you can tell sometimes by the, by the part. We're going to select some of them, like the orbicularis oris, which is around the mouth, the opening of the mouth. These muscles, most of them attach from skin to skin. There's no bones involved here. Some of them, they're fixed to the bone. But some others, they are just superficial. They are very superficial in the skin. And, for instance, this orbicularis oris, the skin at the corner of the mouth, all around the mouth. That's, those are the places where it attaches to. What is the action? The action is closes and protrudes the lips. This is the kissing muscle. The other two... Zygomaticus major and minor, we can be seen in this picture, Zygomaticus major and minor. They come from the zygomatic bone, you know what the zygomatic bone is now, cheek, and it goes toward the angle of the mouth. This is when you make facial expressions like smiling and helps or smiling or lifting your upper lip. But not only, there are other muscles like the levator labii superioris that helps with that. The risorius, which is the, the, the muscle of the, of the smile because it just pulls both angles of the mouth. Depressor labii inferioris, which depresses the angles of the mouth, like when you're in a sad expression. Depressor angulae oris. And those are small, small muscles. The buccinator, the buccinator is the one that is in the wall of, the, of your cheeks. And inside, when you blow a balloon, let's say, and you have this stretching, well, those are the buccinator. And to blow into the balloon, you have to contract those muscles. That's the, the action of the buccinator. 
But we have selected some of them. Here in this list, we have Psychomatics Major, Minor. I think in the lab, we just consider the Orbicularis Oris and Orbicularis Oculi, only these two. And especially to prevent um, confusions in different models that we have in the lab that may show it differently. The other muscle is Orbicularis Oculi. Orbicularis Oculi, which is around the, the eye, the opening of the eye. Action closes the eye. All the action. And the facial nerve, again. Facial nerve innervates all these muscles that, are mentioned, that we are mentioning and even all those small muscles. And now, two muscles that are important to remember, and they are included in the list also, which are the temporalis and masseter. The masseter and temporalis are also called the mastication or chewing muscles. We use these two for chewing our food. The temporalis, in that area where it is, in front of the, of the ear, when you make the bite movement, you bite, you can place your hand here, you can feel the contraction of the temporalis muscle. The masseter is in the angle of the jaw. You can also feel the contraction of it when you bite. These two muscles are innervated by the fifth cranial nerve, cranial nerve number five. What is the action? Well, the masseter elevates the mandible, it's a biting movement, and the temporalis elevates and retracts the mandible. With the mandible, if you try, you have different movements. Have retraction, like pulling the mandible to the back, protraction, pulling it up uh, uh, forward, and sliding both sides, lateral, all these movements. Uh, two of them belong to the temporalis, like moving uh, uh, and retracting the, the mandible in elevation of the mandible. The other are small muscles deeper that make the lateral movements. Um, they are hard to see in these models as they're not included in the list. Slide is blurry. You're not getting blind. Yeah, glasses are okay, don't worry. Sternocleidomastoid. This is to show the sternocleidomastoid. About the sternocleidomastoid, two um, important things to remember are the insertions an origin, mastoid process of the temporal bone, clavicle, and sternum, sternocleidomastoid. The main action of the sternocleidomastoid is rotation of the head. You can easily get to see this when you rotate one side, you get the, the other side contracted, you can feel the tendon of the sternocleidomastoid. It also works for lateral flexion like this, on both sides, and elevation of the thorax. When there are um, cases of patients with asthma, you know, in asthma they cannot breathe well, and the respiratory muscles are the ones that make you breathe, but these people, when they have, they, they are craving for more air, and you can see them how they contract their sternocleidomastoid because they are attached to the sternum and then pulling the sternum up will give more room for the thorax to breathe. And you can see in these people contracting the sternocleidomastoid here. And every inspiration and inhalation, you can see the contraction. But that's not what normally happens. We don't use the sternocleidomastoid to breathe. It's only in, in special situations. Rectus abdominis. 
and external oblique. These are muscles of the abdominal wall, abdominal wall muscles. The rectus abdominis is the one that runs in both sides of the midline, and it is covered by an aponeurosis, as you see here, is white aponeurosis. We have to cut that and open it in order to see the muscle running vertically. The midline, the midline is connective tissue. It's just a fusion of the aponeurosis of both sides. And it's called the linea alba. There's no muscle in the midline. It's just that aponeurosis that is very thick. These two muscles are running on both sides of the linea alba. And uh, it has these tendinous segments or intersections, which are the basis of the commonly known six-packs or eight-packs. Depends how many you have. And people make these muscles grow. They grow in packs because these tendinous insertions or intersection will not leave the muscle grow uniformly. So there are three layers of muscles in both sides, in both sides, in the lateral abdominal wall. And those muscles are from outermost to innermost. First, the sternal oblique. Second layer, the internal oblique. And third layer, and deeper, transversus abdominis. How we can differentiate them? But the direction of the fibers. We can tell the direction of the fibers. And the external oblique, the fibers are running in this way. Internal oblique, second layer, the fibers are running in this other way. And transversus abdominis, as the name says, the fibers run in a transverse way. That's how you can get to differentiate. In the models, in the lab, be careful because what they did was in one half of the model, they showed the external oblique. And you can tell by the fibers. But in the other half, they removed the external oblique, and what you see is the internal oblique. You can see the fibers running in different directions. And also, in half side of the body, in the, uh, they leave the aponeurosis of the rectus abdominis, so you can see the white membrane. And the other side, you see the rectus abdominis uncovered. internal oblique and transversus abdominis. So those are all on top of each other? Yes. They are like layers. Okay. Exactly. And they are easy to slide over the other one. There's connective tissue in between. But that, that picture was showing a missing portion of the external oblique. Yeah. Yeah. This are like this. They're showing like windows. Like windows and three layers. You can see the three other three layers. And here we see them separately, all these three muscles from a lateral view, external oblique. Think about the ribs and how the ribs run. External oblique usually follows that same direction. But the internal oblique, it runs in a different direction. But be careful because, especially in the lower part, next to the pelvis, the fibers, they turn like, like a fan, going in a radial and uh, uh, covering the whole semicircle. So, but mostly they are running 
towards the center and upwards. That's for the internal oblique. And the transversus abdominis is just transverse and transverse fibers. Now, a transverse section of the abdominal wall muscles is shown also here at the bottom. Where we can see the linea alba that I mentioned. It's not muscle, it's just aponeurosis there. In both sides of the linea alba, we have the rectus abdominis. This is inside the cavity, and this is outside. You see this peritoneum is a membrane that is covering the inside of the abdominal cavity. And this concept is important for surgery because usually what we do is a median incision. So we cut, whenever, depending on the type of surgery, but mostly we prefer to make the section in the midline. And the reason is because we don't have to cut any muscle. We just cut through the linea alba. Easy to repair, easy to heal, and less number of complications. There are other places where we can go through is like this. And as you see, I'm not cutting the muscle, I'm just cutting the aponeurosis, avoiding the muscle. We don't want to cut the muscle because it, first it hurts, second it bleeds, and it gives complications afterwards. So depending on the type of surgery, Sometimes they have to cut the muscle, there's no option. But mostly, uh, we prevent to cut the muscle if possible. The diaphragm is a muscle, and also there are muscles uh, in between the ribs, which are the external and internal intercostals. The diaphragm is in between, in between the abdominal cavity and thoracic cavity. It is innervated by the phrenic nerve, which is a nerve that comes from cervical uh, spinal cord, C3 to C5. The external intercostals, all the thoracic spinal nerves take care of these, of these muscles. And these two, external and internal, they follow the same direction as internal oblique and external oblique. See the sternal here? Those are the ones that you see in the models, mostly. And internal intercostals are running in different directions. These muscles are respiratory muscles. The main action of the muscle is respiration. If we block the diaphragm, we will have respiratory arrest. We will not breathe. We are not breathing. Intercostal muscles... Yeah, there are muscles that are important, but not that important as the diaphragm. Diaphragm is the main respiratory muscle. Another blurry image. This is a diaphragm seen from, seen from an abdominal view. From inside the abdominal cavity, you see it to the top. And we see that there is a central tendon in white. And there are three openings, three openings in the diaphragm for three things. Inferior vena cava, esophagus, and this one for the aorta. Inferior vena cava brings the blood from the lower part of the body to the heart. So it necessarily has to go through the diaphragm. Aorta brings the blood from the heart to every part of the body. So necessarily has to go through the diaphragm. 
And the esophagus is that tube that connects the pharynx, the mouth, with the stomach, which is in the abdominal cavity, so it goes through the diaphragm. Yeah? The first one is inferior vena cava. Inferior vena cava, which is a very large vein going through the diaphragm. We usually use those letters IVC for inferior vena cava, IVC. Then moving to other muscles of the thorax, actually the chest. Pectoral is major and pectoral is minor. They are one on top of the other. Pectoral is major, originates in the clavicle, attaches to the sternum, and costal cartilages from the ribs two to six. Clavicle, sternum, and all these cartilages of the ribs from two to six. And it goes to the intertubercular sulcus of the humerus and greater tubercle. The action is adduction. Adduction and medial rotation at the shoulder joint. And there are some special nerves for this medial and lateral pectoral nerves that take care of the innervation of this muscle. And the pectoralis minor is in the second layer, deeper. The origin is in the ribs, two to five, three to five. It's actually from two to five, from the ribs two to five. And it goes to the coracoid process of the scapula, the coracoid process of the scapula. Action abduction of the scapula and rotation of the scapula. Innervation of the medial pectoral nerve. There is a muscle lateral in the thorax called the serratus anterior. Serratus anterior originates in the ribs one to eight or one to nine, and it goes to the medial border and inferior angle of the scapula. Action of this muscle, abduction of the scapula. Abduction with the abduction. This muscle is important for the movement of boxers. Horizontal arm movements like punching, pushing. This is the one that helps when you push something. And the nerve for this muscle is called the long thoracic nerve. This is the nerve, and it's called serratus anterior. Serratus means sawtooth. And it looks like fingers, like four or five fingers in both sides of the thorax. You can see them attached to, uh, to the ribs. But they go all the way back to the scapula. <coughs> Latissimus dorsi. Latissimus dorsi. Latissimus is a word that means very wide. And it's almost a, a very, very large body. I mean, a large muscle of the body. It starts from the spinous processes of the thoracic 
vertebrae, number seven, and it goes all the way to L5. And from there, it goes to the intertubercular sulcus of the humerus. You can see it here. From all these spinous processes, and all the fibers converge to the humerus. This is also called the swimmer's muscle, because the action is like when you swim, you bring and pull your humerus posteriorly like this. Extension, adduction, medial rotation at the shoulder joint. That's how we define these movements. And the nerve for this muscle is called thoracodarsal. Thoracodarsal nerve. These muscles are called they receive a name, these muscles of the shoulder, the rotator cuff muscles. But not all of them listed here. I'm gonna highlight which are the, 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 the ones that are called the rotator cuff muscles. One of them is the supraspinatus. Second is the infraspinatus. And third is the teres, ma uh, teres minor, not the teres major. Teres minor. There's minor, infraspinatus, supraspinatus. What they do is abduction of the arm, rotation of the shoulder joint, lateral rotation. Lateral rotation. So these muscles, what they do is when you are like in this way, and you do this, lateral rotation. Lateral rotation of your arm, the humerus. This is a very commonly heard in sports people that play tennis or play volleyball or basketball or even football and you can detect that if you make this maneuver and do this and it hurts they're usually the supraspinatus up here or you make this other movement like doing this like pouring water in this way and you are doing rotation here and that they may trigger sensitivity there yes they all insert to the greater tubercle. And there are specific facets. I think we spoke about that when we spoke about the humerus. The greater tubercle has three facets for supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor, which can be seen here, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, and teres minor. All of them to the greater tubercle of the humerus. And that's why you can imagine the contraction of the muscles and the humerus is brought to the back posteriorly, uh, lateral rotation. These are the three posterior, but it is one anterior, which is the subscapularis, and that's the, oh, didn't want that. That was the subscapularis, the number four. This one is anterior in the subscapular fossa, as we see here in this picture. The subscapularis that goes and attaches to the lesser tubercle of the humerus. And part, um, and the action is opposite to the other three muscles. This muscle is what it brings medial rotation, lateral rotation, medial rotation. As a reason, it's called rotator cuff muscles. Coracobrachialis is also seen here. 
which comes from, as the name says, from the coracoid process of the scapula to the humerus, coracobrachialis. Flexion and abduction of the arm or shoulder joint. And it's also a synergist of the biceps and brachialis. Deltoid is a muscle of the shoulder, but it has three portions, middle or lateral, anterior and posterior. It has three parts, this deltoid. It goes all around. It inserts in the clavicle, and then it goes around and inserts to the spine of the scapula. A chromial extremity of the clavicle, a chromial scapula, and a spine of the scapula, and it goes to the deltoid tuberosity of the humerus, which is around this segment of the humerus, middle of the humerus. Then if we move to the back, we'll see these muscles. And we're going to see only two layers, because there are more than three or four layers, which are very deep muscles that are right next to the vertebral column. But if we see the two, layers, two first layers, we'll see these muscles. The most superficial is this trapezius, which has a rhomboid or diamond shape. Again, this picture is showing just half of it. The other half has been removed. This trapezius is the most superficial. And it attaches to the occipital. And it goes to the clavicle, the acromion, and the spine of the scapula. And also to the midline, transverse uh, spinous processes from C7 to T12. This is the muscle that we see the border here in the back of the neck. It's usually where we have muscular contractures, especially when you're stressed out. Those muscles are the ones that contract. But not only, deeper muscles can also be contracted. Now, removing the trapezius, we see the second layer, which is composed by three muscles that are medial, levator, scapulae, rhomboid major, and rhomboid minor, which goes levator scapulae from the cervical vertebrae to the angle of the scapula. Rhomboid minor is the next from the spinous process of the thoracic vertebrae to the medial border of the scapula. And the rhomboid major, the lower, that goes from the thoracic vertebrae to the medial border of the scapula. What is the action of these muscles? Well, elevate and adduct the scapula. Abduction is a movement where you bring the part of the body, like the arm, away from the midline. Adduction with double D, you bring it back to the midline. So when we contract these muscles is when we make this movement like here. Bring your scapula closer one to another. That's the action of the rhomboids. <coughs> Going down, we get to the forearm. And the forearm flexors first Bices brachii, brachialis, and brachioradialis. These two work together, bices brachii and brachialis. 
We have reviewed the actions of this before. Flexion of the forearm and supination of the forearm biceps. Brachialis, just flexion. So these two are synergies. They work together whenever we flex our forearm. Brachioradialis also helps. That's a muscle that goes from the arm and it goes all the way down to the wrist. And it's actually this border you see in the lateral aspect of the forearm. This border is provided by the brachioradialis. So when you make this flexion, this also works as a synergist. And in posterior arm, we see the forearm extensors, which is one, mainly the triceps brachii. Triceps brachii come from the scapula, and it goes to the olecranon of the ulna. And there are three heads or three portions a medial head, a lateral head, and a long head. That's how we call them. Extension of the forearm is the action. And the nerve that innervates this one is called the radial nerve. And now we get to the hard part, which is the forearm. Because there's a lot of muscles here. And it is because Imagine how many movements we have in our hands. Very fine movements of every single finger. You can do everything with your fingers. Small movements, different types of movements. Well, summarizing the thing, there are three layers of muscles here in the forearm. What they do is flexion of the wrist, flexion of the phalanges, and flexion of the distal phalanx. So if you analyze the movements of the forearm, you have three movements. First is flexion of the wrist, like this. The second movement you're able to make is this one. Phalanges, distal phalanges over the metacarpals. And the third is just the distal phalanx. So three movements. Now if you put them all together, you have this. Make a fist. When you give a punch like this, you contract in all three layers of muscles. But that's the way they are distributed in the, in the anatomy. The first layer of muscles that take care of the flexion of the wrist are these three. Flexor carpi radialis, palmaris longus, and flexor carpi ulnaris. All of them come from the medial epicondyle of the humerus. And they go to different places in the wrist, metacarpals, and the palmar aponeurosis, and the PC form those carpal bones. The action is flexion of the wrist. Now the second layer, which we don't have in the list, but let me tell you the name of this, is called flexor digitorum superficialis. Makes this movement right here of the fingers over the metacarpal uh, phalanges, interphalangeal, no, metacarpal uh, phalangeal joints. And the deepest layer is called the extens the flexor digitorum profundus, which, are, which is a big muscle that gives tendons for the four fingers, so you can make this distal phalanx movement. Then we go to the extensors. That's another thing to remember. In anatomical position, anterior forearm, all of them are flexors. 
posterior extensors. And they are extensor carpi radialis longus. And these are the muscles that have long names. But again, there are patterns. Extensor is posterior. Carpi, because it goes to the carpal side, meaning it goes to the wrist. Radialis is in the thumb side. Longus and brevis is because the tendon is longer or shorter. And that's how you will see it in the models in the, in the lab. And they are right next to the brachioradialis. Here, we can see the extensor carpi radialis longus. The tendon is very long. Extensor carpi radialis brevis right next to it. And here is the brachioradialis. So it goes brachioradialis, extensor carpi radialis longus, extensor carpi radialis brevis. And then continuing with extensors, we have the extensor digitorum which provides tendons for the four fingers, extension. When we are like this, extension, we make all these movements at the same time. And extensor carpi, um, extensor carpi ulnaris, which is not in the list, but I have it in the list of the, of the lab. Finally, going to the lower limb, Starting with the gluteal region, we have three muscles here. Again, outer, middle, and deeper layer. Gluteus maximus is the outermost, gluteus medius, and the innermost is the gluteus minimus. All of them in the gluteal region. Gluteus maximus, gluteus medius in the second layer. This is actually the muscle that we hit in injections, the gluteus medius. We don't hit the gluteus maximus. And the reason is because right here, there is a sciatic nerve, which is a big nerve running in this direction. So you don't want to hit that nerve with the needle. And also there are blood vessels there. Yeah. No. Usually the needles that I use for this are one inch and a half. One and a half inch, yeah. And it has to be like that because there's a lot of adipose tissue there. But if you choose uh, one and a half inch and your patient is skinny, then you're making a bad choice and you may be hitting deep planes. So that's why. And even if you use a very long needle and you hit the gluteus medius, there's no risk that you are hitting a nerve or blood vessel. It's just muscle there. The worst thing that can happen is you can hit the bone. And... Uh, that won't bleed. It will hurt, but it won't bleed. It will make a, 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 a longer complication. Of course, it will be pretty much cursed by your patient. But <laughs> that'll be temporary suffering. But it's not supposed to be done. You know, there are specific uh, guidelines to choose the size of the needle according to the uh, estimation of adipose tissue the patient has and all that. But the most important is that you don't hit the gluteus maximus because you are at risk of hitting the nerves and, and blood vessels there. And the minimus is a very deep muscle. It's a very deep muscle. Here you have uh, all these muscles cut by layers. Here you have the minimus. It's very close to the bone. It's practically covering the, the pelvic bone. And we don't get to see that in the models. We have gluteus maximus, gluteus Medius, a little bit of the medius, but not the minimus. It's a very deep muscle. Tensor of fascia latte. 
tensor of fascia lattice is as a muscle, which is small muscle, because we see it here, lateral tensor of fascia lattice. The next portion of this muscle is just a membrane. It's a membrane that is called iliotibial band or IT band. And it's something that we can touch also in the side of our, of our thigh. If you are standing, you can feel, you can touch that part. It's really membranous. It doesn't feel like, like muscle. It feels like a, like a layer, a very thick plastic thing. Well, it's a membrane. That's called IT band. And it's connected to the tensor or the fascia latte. Thanks to these muscles that we can stand and we can lean to the sides so and we don't fall because they remain contracted and, and the position is uh, stable. Anterior thigh, the main muscle here is called quadriceps. And this quadriceps is composed by four different muscles. Rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, and vastus medialis. And you may say, where's the fourth? Well, you have to lift the rectus femoris, and you will find the vastus intermedius under the rectus femoris. All these four, they are called the quadriceps. Also here, we have a muscle, this long muscle, that starts in the pelvic bone in the ilium, and it crosses the thigh and goes all over, all around the knee to the tibia. That muscle is called sartorius. Sartorius, and this muscle that works when we cross the legs, put the leg one over the other, that movement, that is favored by the sartorius. So here we have that list, rectus femoris, lateralis, medialis, intermedius, and sartorius. A doctor Lungus, a doctor Brevis, a doctor Magnus, all these are called the adductors. And they are in the medial aspect of the thigh. We can see them here. You have to see this in the model because otherwise in the pictures are really hard to, to show, but you have the doctor Lungus. A little bit of the magnus is seen here, and the brevis is not seen at all because it's underneath. In this other picture here, we can see the doctor's magnus, which is a very big muscle, longus, and brevis. All of them are called adductors, and uh, they adduct the thigh to bring all the thigh medially. Pectineus is a very small muscle which can be seen right next to the, the, the adductor brevis. You can see that in the model very well. Another blurry? Oh no, this is good. Hamstrings. These muscles are called hamstrings in our posterior thigh. So remember about these muscles, the biceps femoris, there's a biceps in the thigh, the biceps femoris, is seen here and it has long head and short head and it's lateral it's a lateral muscle all this biases femoris 
And the other two muscles to mention here are the semitendinosus and semimembranosus, which are one on top of the other. The semimembranosus is under the tendinosus. So it's actually two muscles, one on top of the other. The membranosus is under, the semitendinosus is on top of it. All of them are called hamstrings. The action is flexion of the leg at the knee joint. All of them. And lower in the leg, anteriorly, tibialis anterior. And right next to the tibialis anterior, extensor or digitorum longus that is going to extend the toes. Extensor digitorum longus and tibialis anterior. The tendons of these muscles can be easily tracked and seen even in ourselves. When you check your foot, the dorsum of your foot, you can see those tendons when you uh, extend the, the toes. And you can tell which is tibialis anterior, which are the four tendons of the stensor digitorum longus. But as I said, tibialis anterior right next to the tibia. So right next to the tibia. Posterior and lateral, lateral aspect of the leg, we have two muscles, fibularis longus and fibularis brevis. They are right next to the fibula, longus, and fibularis brevis. The term longus and brevis refer to the size of the tendon. The tendon is long, we call that fibularis longus. The tendon is shorter, fibularis Brevis. You can see these muscles in the models also uh, very clear. And posterior thigh, I mean posterior leg, two muscles, gastrocnemius and soleus. Gastrocnemius and soleus. The most superficial gastrocnemius, which has two heads, lateral and medial, and the soleus underneath. All of them, these two muscles, will get together and it connects to the calcaneus through the calcaneal tendon or Achilles tendon. So this is what we're going to do in the lab today, this week. And uh, notice that this is the last new material for the lab. Next week there's no more lab reports. Next week lab is just review. So you can use the time for reviewing the bones, axial, appendicular, muscles, everything, because the following week we have the practical exam. All right, we'll see you in the lab later.